This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Millions of Americans suffer from seasonal allergies, causing a variety of symptoms which often force them to stay indoors and limit their activities. Allergic rhinitis carries a significant economic burden, accounting for an estimated 2 million lost school days and 6 million lost workdays per year. Fortunately, there are numerous treatment options available. The topic for today's podcast is seasonal allergies, and we'll discuss how to use the patient's history to determine the patient's allergies, when allergy tests are indicated, and management of seasonal allergies. Our guest today is Dr. Monsi Kanuga, an allergist at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Monsi, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation to join you for this discussion today. Well, you know, this is a common issue that we see in primary care. And can you go over what are important questions we should ask our patients when we're taking their medical history, which would help us kind of establish a diagnosis of seasonal allergies? Yes, absolutely. And and I really appreciate that we're starting off with this question in particular, because it really is a key component of establishing that diagnosis of allergic rhinitis. I often tell patients, you know, the devil's in the details, and I do spend a good amount of my time with them pulling those details out through our history taking. So in trying to dry out that suspicion for allergic rhinitis, one key component is really establishing what the typical symptoms are that a patient has been experiencing. Our typical symptoms of mast cell degranulation would include things like nasal congestion, rhinorrhea, sneezing, itchy, watery eyes, those symptoms that we typically think of when we hear hay fever. Once in a while, we'll have a patient come in and describe some more nondescript features, perhaps head pressure or headaches. That alone probably wouldn't rise to the top of my suspicion for allergy. It really is key that we have some of those other more typical features to go along with it. Another key component, historically speaking, would be establishing when these symptoms began. So stage of life matters. Our infants, maybe first first months of life, may have nasal congestion and rhinorrhea. Likelihood of that being allergic rhinitis is really quite low. We're not born with our allergies. They really do develop over time. Similarly, if we've enjoyed a lifetime without any hay fever symptoms, and maybe we're now into our 70s or 80s presenting with that runny nose for the first time, much less likely to be allergic in etiology. We still look for it, but our suspicions for that go down. I like to establish that symptom pattern. Um, So if this is something that's happening annually, say, for example, when those trees are blooming each spring, that suspicion for allergy goes up versus the wintertime only symptoms occurring maybe a week or two at a time might raise our suspicion for an alternate diagnosis, for example, viral etiology. And then finally, I like to really draw out those established triggers. So what have, I give our patients a lot of credit. They're fantastic at identifying those triggers and bringing that to us as clinicians. If they've noticed, symptoms really are often triggered, again, as I mentioned, during that spring tree pollen season or with exposure to animal dander, that might rise up our suspicions for an allergic etiology. As compared to some of those typical non-allergic triggers, cold air exposure or strong smell exposure, for example. Okay. What's the difference between allergic rhinitis and vasomotor rhinitis? 
Another great question. Those are, of course, rhinitis is core to the word for both of those conditions. We really have an overlap in symptoms characterized by congestion and drainage. Allergic rhinitis is really specifically an immune-mediated response triggered by allergen exposure in an individual who has a specific IgE against that allergen. So an individual who's allergic to cats will have those nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing type symptoms elicited when they get exposed to the cat. Vasomotor rhinitis, on the other hand, is a non-allergic condition, again, characterized by intermittent congestion and drainage, but more triggered by those non-allergic causes, as I'd mentioned earlier, nonspecific irritants, such as cold air or strong smell exposure. Okay. I can imagine it's kind of different, difficult to tell the two apart if you're exposed to something that's there constantly, like you know, dust mites or pets. That's sometimes difficult to tell allergic rhinitis from vasomotor rhinitis. When are allergy tests useful? Do we need them in all patients or can we treat patients empirically based on their history? I'm going to probably give you two parts to that answer. We do have patients sometimes who just frankly want to know what they're allergic to. And as you just pointed out, sometimes it can be difficult to tell the difference between vasomotor rhinitis and allergic rhinitis. And skin testing can be quite helpful, really is key with making that diagnosis of allergic rhinitis to establish those sensitivities that correlate with their symptom presentation. Not all patients, that being said, need to undergo testing before embarking on treatment. We have some really great treatment options that are available. Frankly, many of them are available over the counter at this stage. And so it would be quite reasonable to start with some empiric therapies, such as antihistamines or nasal spray trials. When those aren't quite effective, then we do usually take that next step to tease what's going out a little bit further with utilizing those skin tests. You mentioned antihistamines and uh, nasal steroids. What should we be using as a first line? Some patients don't need both. Which should come first? I think many of us really do enjoy being able to take a pill. It just seems simpler and easier. And so antihistamines often are that first line therapy. I think they're most helpful with treatment of things like sneezing and runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, can really help alleviate some of the milder symptoms of allergy. When we start exhibiting more significant congestion, however, that's when our antihistamines start to fall short, and that's when it can be nice to add on that nasal steroid treatment option to really directly reduce the inflammation that causes that congestion. And therefore, the combo of the two can actually be a really nice way to treat allergic rhinitis. Could you briefly go over the correct way to use the nasal steroid inhalers? I've got some patients who say they use them intermittently, almost like a decongestant, and I have to explain why that's not the best way, but tell us how we should really be recommending the use of nasal steroid inhalers. Sure. I appreciate you asking because I I think that's spot on. It's an excellent point to clarify with patients because they will often make it to the allergist and say, I tried that nose spray and it didn't help. And when you ask, you realize, well, we only maybe used it for a day or two and, and didn't feel that instant relief. So the nasal steroid sprays do take some time to work, but if we can hang in there long enough, they really are a great way to treat the underlying inflammation that causes that congestion in the nose. So for milder symptoms that really are intermittent, it may be reasonable for patients to at least start by trialing it as needed, but when that falls short, we do encourage them to use it every single day. 
that would be, you know, another reason we're knowing what you're allergic to can help guide the times of year where we might want to utilize our nasal sprays more consistently to get more of that consistent relief from the congestion and nasal drainage. I also really like to emphasize with patients that the technique matters. So when we use our nasal sprays, I do take time to help educate our patients that we want to make sure that we're looking kind of in a, in a neutral position. So looking straight and then tilting that head down a little so that if you were seated, you were almost looking towards your toes. Many patients want to look up and when they spray while looking up, of course, the medication just drains down the back of the throat. So looking down in that neutral position can help reduce that drainage down the back of the throat. When we place the nasal spray into the nose, making that point to make sure that it is pointed towards that same side eye. And that way we're delivering medications onto those swollen turbinates and helping to reduce that inflammation. And then finally counseling that we don't need to snort our medication up so that we don't drink that medication down the back of the throat. Mm -hmm. So making a few minor adjustments in how we use our nasal spray can really go a long way towards improving efficacy. Yeah. I've got a few patients who take the nasal steroid spray year-round. Are they at any risk of having any significant systemic absorption of the steroid? Our experiences really know. I think that's kind of the beauty of these nasal sprays. I do emphasize with patients that, you know, in the situation of using sprays, we're putting the medication directly where the problem is, and we're enjoying very little systemic absorption. So we really haven't found that in our pediatric age group, that use of nose sprays is impacting growth, for example. And again, because of the lack of systemic absorption creates a much safer safety profile for that medicine. Well, in addition to the nasal steroid inhalers, patients also have available the vasoconstrictor inhalers. Some actually like those better because they get instant relief. What's the risk in using those? So the vasoconstrictors, as you've pointed out, are doing just that. They're just constricting the blood vessels in the nose, and they're temporarily creating some extra space to relieve that nasal congestion. It's not treating the core problem. It's not reducing the inflammation in the nose. And so when our blood vessels dilate again, we have the recurrence of the nasal congestion, prompting us to feel that we need to use that vasoconstrictor nasal spray again. That's okay for short-term use. So for for example, if we've got a cold and we have that really severe nasal congestion, we need immediate relief, but we know the cold will pass over the course of a few days, it might be reasonable to use your nasal decongestant up to a max of three days. Beyond that, consistent use will cause that rebound nasal congestion, a condition called rhinitis medicamentosa, and that can be really difficult to then reverse and try to break that cycle. Okay. Let's go back and talk a little bit about the uh, antihistamines. We have several non-sedating antihistamines available. Do you find one more effective than the others? That is true. We really do have several options available. I'd say perhaps we find cetirizine and fexofenadine to be somewhat more potent than loratadine, for example. But frankly, at the end of the day, I do leave it up to our patients. We sometimes have these individualized responses where we just find one works best to meet our needs, and that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, I've found that often that patients have tried several and they find one more effective than the others, but it does not seem to be any one consistently. So True. I can apply that to other patients. 
Well, I will, if it's okay for me to add on one more comment on that sure. antihistamine piece. Sometimes we have patients present where they will raise questions around, do they need to rotate the use of an antihistamine or if they continue to use it consistently, will it wear off or, or they'll ask if they will build up tolerance. And so the answer to that is really no. You know, we find that if an antihistamine is helping, it's certainly fine for long-term use. And when our patients find that it's not not quite cutting it to relieve their symptoms sufficiently, it's typically because they're experiencing exacerbation of symptoms and it's time for us just to evaluate escalation of therapy. Again, going back to the example of nasal congestion, only partially alleviated by antihistamine use, and, and that's much more effectively treated with the addition of the nasal spray. Okay. One additional treatment that some patients really find effective is this nasal saline irrigation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I really like nasal saline irrigations. Admittedly, not the most convenient therapy in the world. It does take some time to, to prep and make the solution, but a really nice medication-free way to help rinse those nasal passages can be effective during allergy season to help just physically rinse out any pollen we may have inhaled up our nose while during our outdoor time, and also effective way to help remove excess secretions, particularly when we're experiencing enough of a flare that we're now backing up and having pressure in our sinuses or uh, congestion that would otherwise be draining down the back of the throat. Those saline rinses can be quite helpful in alleviating some of those symptoms. Okay. And then finally, how about allergy injections? When should we recommend patients pursue those? Allergy injections are a really wonderful tool that we have in our toolbox to combat allergic rhinitis in particular. So specifically, it's a treatment where we are retraining the immune system to shift away from having this potent allergic response and shift towards more tolerance. So I counsel patients that allergy injections are a useful tool if one, we've proven that their symptoms are directly caused by the established aller allergic sensitivities that they have. Um, so essentially, for example, we'd like to show that a patient who has those flare of hay fever symptoms each spring, that they do in fact have allergic sensitivity to tree pollen, they would be a nice candidate then for allergen immunotherapy to try to retrain their system to be more tolerant with exposure to the pollen. It is an excellent treatment option for those individuals who've maximized their medical therapy. So they're using their antihistamine, their nasal sprays, their eye drops, and they're still suffering with symptoms. Or perhaps their allergies are causing other types of healthcare complications, an example being more difficult to control asthma or uh, difficulty with sinus disease. Mm -hmm. So allergen immunotherapy can be a very nice treatment option for those individuals as well. It's a really nice way to improve tolerance long-term and then therefore reduce long-term medication needs as well. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything new in your toolbox? Any new treatments that uh, patients may benefit from? You know, in the world of allergy, yes, there's always research going on, but I will say we have some wonderful tried and true treatment options between our, our allergy pills, our nasal sprays, and allergy shots. One of the newer treatment options would be the uh, sublingual immunotherapy, so these tablets to essentially try to achieve similar effects to the allergy injections. Of course, they're more convenient to take because they don't require needles. 
That said, we do have some limitations. So we currently only have the sublingual immunotherapy approved for treatment of dust mite allergy, grass allergy, and ragweed allergy. So dust mite, grass, and ragweed allergy. Limitations there, we cannot combine those sublingual treatments. They're just beneficial for our patients who tend to be monosensitized to just ragweed. In the United States, we tend to be polysensitized. We tend to have a lot of different allergies. It might be tree pollens, grass pollens, animal danders as well. And that's where back to our traditional injection immunotherapy offers us the benefit to be able to address all of those allergies in, in one treatment plan. Can we separate the trees and grass pollens from patients who have ragweed pollens based on their history? Yes, so that would be going back to that history with establishing the pattern of when symptoms tend to occur. So the tree season occurs during springtime, so varies depending on where you are in the country. Uh, Here in Minnesota, of course, we tend to see that steep rise in the month of May and having the tree pollen settle down into June. Grass pollen tends to be released during our summer season, so June and July would be our grass pollen months. For those patients who have symptom onset towards the later end of summer, so that mid-August through the first frost, that would correlate with a weed pollen allergy. And what do we do with patients who have year-round symptoms? Is it okay for them to take an antihistamine and a nasal steroid spray daily indefinitely? Yeah, generally speaking, it is. And I like to emphasize to patients that we've seen a lot of our medications become available over the counter over the last decade or more. And that really speaks to the safety profile. These medications have not been made less potent to be available over the counter, but they are safe for long-term use. And so therefore do have that nice safety profile that have allowed them to become available over the counter. Yeah, I can remember when the non-sedating antihistamines first came out, they were prescription only and same with the uh, nasal steroid sprays. So things have changed. What about the relationship between allergies and asthma? They often seem to have uh, kind of go together. That's true. So asthma, of course, is a complex disease that can have a number of different triggers for some individuals. They have mild intermittent asthma, primarily triggered by non-allergic things like exercise or cold air exposure, for example. We do see a significant amount of overlap, however, in our allergic individuals also developing asthma where allergen sensitivities then therefore trigger their asthma as well. And so the two become very important. It is important for us to control the allergies as a piece of keeping asthma under good control. Okay. Well, Monsa, you've covered a lot of ground today. Can you summarize by maybe giving us two or three key points regarding our discussion on seasonal allergies? Sure. You know, allergies have a tremendous amount of impact on quality of life. I think sometimes our patients do under-recognize how much the allergies are impacting their quality of life. I'd like to emphasize that we have some really great treatment options to allow patients to get outdoors and enjoy their pollen seasons without having to suffer the mystery of their symptom flares. A few 
key pieces in managing allergies, one would be avoidance as reasonable. So if we're able to identify what we're allergic to, we can institute some measures to try to reduce our exposure. For example, if we're thinking about getting a pet cat, but we know we have an allergy to cat, that might adjust our approach to bringing a pet into the home. With pollen season, we do not want people to have to stay indoors, but after planning some time outdoors, of course, coming in and making some efforts to to change clothing and, and reduce bringing that pollen back into indoors. And finally, medications. We've got some great medication options to control symptoms. Many of them, thankfully, have great safety profile, so they are safe for long-term use. Allergy shots can be a really fantastic tool to help better control symptoms when either medications are failing or when patients are finding they're just needing way too much medication to keep their symptoms under good control. We've been discussing seasonal allergies with Dr. Monsi Kanuga an allergy specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Monty, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thanks so much for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.